Scripture for today is in John, third chapter, 31st verse to the 36th. That's John 3, 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Our Father, what John said to his disciples in that day is true of us in this day. Unless we receive grace and help from heaven, we will not be able to understand even one thing. And so I pray this morning before I begin to preach that you would help us by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would teach us by the Holy Spirit. Father, I am the preacher this morning, but you are the true teacher today. And I pray that you would be the one to illuminate your word. I pray that you would be the one to give understanding about your word. I pray that you would be the one to apply the word to every life in this room and every life listening online. I pray, Father, that you would be the one to lead us farther into the joy that you have prepared for us. And I pray, Father, that for our part, that we would be like humble children, eager to learn, eager to learn of you and eager to grow in love for you. Father, I thank you for what you will do. And I thank you, Father, for what you have spoken in this word. In Jesus' mighty and merciful name, we pray these things. Amen. Sadly, not everyone has had the opportunity to grow up in a healthy family. Some of us have uh, lived with parents who were emotionally distant from each other, and that might not sound like a big deal unless you grew up in a family like that, and then you know how harmful and how difficult that, that can be. Some of us have grown up in families where there was verbal and physical abuse, and that also is very difficult. Others of us have lived through the divorce of our parents, like my wife did. Some have lived through the abandonment of one or both parents, and some, like myself, have lived through the death of one or both parents. We have not all had the chance to grow up in a healthy family. The truth is that even for relatively healthy families, there's brokenness and dysfunction in those families, isn't there? Every one of us is a sinful person. Every one of us acts in sinful ways. And so even despite our best efforts, we cause hurt and we cause pain. And by the grace of God, uh, that pain can be healed. But be that as it may, in God's good design, the most important thing in a healthy family is the love of God for that family and their love back toward the Lord. And at a human level, the most important feature of a healthy family is the love of the father for his wife and the love of the mother for her husband. There's nothing in a healthy family that is more important than that. When that vital marital relationship is healthy, when the father loves the mother with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, when he lays down his life for her in the way that, that Christ laid down his life for the church and when the wife loves her husband more than anyone else, and when she supports him and partners with him to fulfill the mission that God has given to that family, when that vital relationship is healthy, 
That family has got a great chance at being healthy. Their relationship becomes a sort of fountain of love and joy and life. In other words, there's plenty of love to be passed around. There's plenty of blessings to flow out to the rest of the family. On the other hand, when that marital relationship is unhealthy, when the father and mother do not put God first and then at a human level put one another first, when there's strife and discord inside of that fundamental relationship in the family, there is also uh, unhealth, generally speaking, in the family. Their relationship becomes a kind of black hole that draws the love and joy and life out of the family and into themselves, and unfortunately, that breeds difficulty and brokenness and division. A child may or may not hear this as good news, but I'm telling you that the best news a child can hear is that under God, her father first loves his wife and her mother first loves her husband. As goes this vital relationship, so goes the family. There is a similar dynamic in the family of God as well. Last week we had the privilege of meditating on and hopefully cherishing John 3.16 in its context. Oh, what a glorious truth it is, a life-giving truth it is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. This week we're gonna learn another truth. We're gonna see that there is a greater love that precedes and defines God's love for the world. Specifically, we're gonna see that first and foremost, the Father loves the Son with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. He loves the Son beyond measure. He loves the Son more than he loves the world. He loves the Son more than he loves the angels. He loves the Son more than he loves all other persons and things. And beloved, because this is true, God's family is a healthy family. Because this vital relationship is first, because the Father first loves the Son and the Son first loves the Father, their relationship is a river of love and life and joy for all who will believe in him and all who will receive forgiveness from their hand. The best news that a child of God can hear is that God the Father loves his Son more than he loves us. And the Son loves his Father more than he loves us. It doesn't necessarily on hearing it strike us as good news, but it is the greatest news. We will come back to this uh, truth in a little bit at the end of the message, but for now, let's turn our attention to John 3.22 and we'll work our way to the end of John chapter 3. Sometime after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and the ministry in the temple that followed, he went with his disciples out into the Judean wilderness. He probably went over by the Jordan River to the, to the west of Jerusalem. There, people began to come to Jesus, and there he began to baptize them. Now, if you'll peek real quick at chapter 4, verse 2, you'll see there that Jesus himself was not the one baptizing, but he was superintending as his disciples were baptizing but be that as it may, it, this, is, this is a little bit odd because none of the other gospels ever mention Jesus baptizing. And so we have to ask the question, why was he baptizing and how was he envisioning this ministry of baptism? From the perspective of the people who were coming to him, they probably envisioned their baptism as a symbol of repentance, of purification, and of devotion to their newfound teacher. That would have been a normal Jewish way to think about baptism and it probably exactly what the people who were being baptized by Jesus' disciples were thinking. From Jesus' point of view, I would bet that he would endorse and embrace that point of view. I bet that he would have no problem with seeing baptism as a ritual for repentance and for purification. 
and for devotion to their newfound teacher who happened to be a lot more than the people at that time understood that he was. But the thing is that Jesus also knew about things to come, didn't he? Jesus had full knowledge that he was going to live a righteous life, that he was going to die a horrible death on the cross, that he was going to be buried in the ground, that he was going to rise again to new life, and that he was going to ascend to the right hand of his Father forever and ever. And Jesus knew that in coming days, people would be baptized in his name as a symbol of their union with him in death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You can look to Romans 6 and see that teaching there clearly, but Jesus at this time knew it. So I think for Jesus, baptism was in part a rite of purification, and it also was a prophecy of things to come. Jesus was baptizing people into something that they did not yet understand because he knew that soon this is the way they would find eternal life, through unity with him in death and in resurrection. At this very time, John the Baptist was also baptizing. He was with his disciples up north, somewhere just west of the Jordan River, uh, somewhat north. The city is called Anon. It means springs. We're not sure exactly where it was, but we know that it was north of where Jesus was at the time. While they were there baptizing, people were coming to him in droves. It seems like even though Jesus emerged on the scene, that John's ministry really did not diminish. They were still coming to him, and he was still immersing them in water, and he was still pointing them to the one who is greater than him. He was still preaching to them about the purposes and the plans of God that were literally being fulfilled in their midst, and for some of them being fulfilled in their very Sight. Oh, I'm sure that John took joy in preaching and in playing the role that God had given him to play, which was essentially the role of second fiddle and not first fiddle. While they were baptizing, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew. We don't know anything about this man, but probably he was there either to be baptized or he was there to question these people about what they were doing. There were already many rites of purification in the Jewish world, and so John and all of his disciples were Jewish, and surely this man was curious as to why he was administering this symbol of baptism. And you'll remember that in the Jewish context, they did do baptisms, but they only baptized non-Jews who were coming into belief in the one and uh, only God but the Jewish leaders themselves did not conduct the baptisms. Rather, they oversaw the ceremony while people self-baptized. John was not like that. John himself was doing the baptism, and so probably this man, he, he either again was there to be baptized or he was there to discuss all these issues with John's disciples. Whatever the case is, somehow or other, Jesus either came up in that conversation and the fact that he was baptizing, or at least Jesus came up in the heart of John's disciples while they were having this conversation. Whatever the case, they made a beeline to their teacher, they made a beeline to John, and they asked him a question that really was revealing of their hearts. Specifically, they said this. They said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you witnessed, you remember him? Well, look now, Rabbi, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, that was clearly an exaggeration to say everybody's going out to him because we just heard that people were also coming to John. But that exaggeration reveals their hearts. Do you see what was underneath their question? What was under their question is this. They're saying, teacher, this guy's taking people away from us. 
This guy has risen up and now he's on the scene and now people are flocking to him and they're taking people away from the one that we gave our lives to follow. He's taking people away from you. They were jealous, beloved. They were upset about this. They were mixed about how they felt about Jesus and the things that he was doing. John, however, was a mature man of God. And, and, and mainly what I mean by that is that John was a man of the word of God. Some people give lip service to the Bible. I don't think John gave lip service to the Bible. I think this man devoured it day in and day out in his life. And I think he knew it backward and forward. And while he surely loved his disciples, he neither shared their concern nor did he share their discontent in his station in life. And therefore he began to answer them in verse 27 and he said this. He said, a person cannot receive even one single thing unless it is given to him from heaven. As I was praying about this this week, this struck me like a sentence that John was almost saying to himself, but in the hearing of other people. I could just imagine him sort of shaking his head and saying, brothers, I have spoken to you about this repeatedly, and I have spoken to you about this so clearly. I have told you with my mouth, and I have showed you in the word who Jesus is, who I am, how we're related to one another, and how I feel about that. I could not have been clearer to you, and yet you still do not understand. And so John just says to them, I see, and I hope that you can see that a person can't even receive one single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Now, beloved, that's something we really need to think about because the fact of what John is saying is very uh, revelatory about the human heart. I think it shows us the depth of stubbornness and hardness that is in every single one of our hearts. I told you last week that every time we sin against God, it's as though a spiritual leprosy takes over our souls. We become unfeeling. We become unknowing of when we're even sinning against God. We become callous about the fact that we break the heart of God every time we break the will of God. We walk away and we walk away and we become more and more callous and it seems at times that for us the light even becomes like darkness and the darkness even becomes like light. Well, the men who came to John here, beloved, these were not worldly men. We don't know much about them, we don't know how long they followed John, but we know this. They left their normal lives to follow one of the most intense and godly prophets that had been on the scene for centuries and centuries. Do you understand? They were disciples of the one that Jesus said is the greatest prophet who ever walked this earth. They were taught by him. They did life with him. They ate with him. They drank with him. They slept with him. These were not spiritual preschoolers, if you will. These were supposedly mature men of God, and yet even for them, they could not understand the simplest of teachings unless God himself opened up their hearts. And the thing is this, our hearts are just like their hearts. Whatever we truly do understand of God is pure grace, and I hope we receive it like that. I hope nobody in this church boasts about the things that you truly know about God because whatever God has shown of us is pure grace from his hands, amen? And I pray that every one of us, especially those of us who have walked with the Lord a long time and been in the word of God a long time, I pray that we would not become arrogant. I pray that we would not think that we know more about God than we do. I pray that we would not overstate our knowledge of God and our, the state of our, our way of life and walking in the will and the ways of God. There's always more to know. And in fact, I find the older I get in Christ, the more I find that I'm learning about things that I thought I already knew. 
It's not so much that I'm learning new aspects of God, it's just that things I thought I already knew, God is unveiling my eyes to the depth of truth that's there. And so I pray that we would come before him today like humble children who have much to learn. I pray that we would have that heart in us that was in the man in Mark 9:24, when he said, I believe, Lord, but please help my unbelief. And I pray that we would be, learn to be patient with people around us, especially people who are not understanding fundamental spiritual things that are so clear to us. Because unless a person is helped from above, unless they get insight from heaven, they cannot understand even one single thing. We would do well to ponder on that verse, beloved. With this, John patiently but firmly continued to press into his disciples by reminding them of what he had already said. He didn't say anything new, he just said what he had already said. He said to them, you yourselves bear me witness that I bore witness. You were there to witness the day that I bore witness to Jesus, and then you were there the next day when I bore witness to him again, and you can bear me witness of that. I said in your hearing, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And if you'll allow me a little poetic license here, let me just summarize how I hear what John is saying. I think he's saying to them, I am a man of God, but I am not the man of God. Rather, my role is this, I was sent before the Christ to prepare the way for the Christ, and I'm happy about that. I have seen this in the word of God, and I have proclaimed it in your hearing and in the hearing of very powerful religious leaders. I have openly taught that I am the one who has been sent into the wilderness to cry, prepare the way of the Lord. And my disciples, do you still not understand I have told you of these things and then you saw Jesus with your eyes and when you saw him with your eyes, I pointed to him and I explained it to you again. And do you still not understand? Is there still some kind of fleshly jealousy in your heart? Well, John says, let me offer you a metaphor to help you get how this relationship works and how I feel about it. He says to them, basically, imagine a wedding. You all know that At a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom is at the center of the ceremony. In our culture, the bride is at the center. But in Jewish culture, the bridegroom, the groom, was at the center of attention. And so John says to his disciples, you know who the bridegroom is because he's the one who has the bride. And he's the only one who has the bride. At that wedding, many important people will be present. Some of them are just important in the family circles. Some of them are important in the larger culture, but it doesn't matter how important the people are who were there on that day, at that ceremony, and at that feast that could last up to seven days, the bridegroom is the center of attention. It is all about him, and you yourselves know that very well. Now, the friend of the bridegroom is not the center of attention. Rather, he has three jobs, at least. Number one is he is to stand beside the bridegroom and do whatever that this guy needs to be done on that particular day. Number two, he is tasked to oversee all the details of the wedding so that he keeps the focus of the wedding party on the bridegroom and that he keeps the focus of the bridegroom on his bride. He's a servant to the bridegroom. And number three, he has this amazing job to escort the bridegroom and the bride into their bridal chamber where they can celebrate and consummate the newly formed union that God has so graciously given to them. The friend of the bridegroom is a servant. He is not the center. And in this, 
he greatly rejoices. The Greek there says that he rejoices with joy. John's trying to say something about how he feels. When this man hears the shout of the bridegroom, that in Jewish weddings means that the marriage has been completed, he then enters into the happiness of the bridegroom and celebrates with him the grace and the blessings of God that have just been bestowed. And so John says to his disciples, oh, my beloved friends, do you not understand that this is my joy and my joy is now complete, my joy is now made full? Do you not see that God has brought me through so many things in this life to bring me to this point of my life so that I could see the Christ with my own eyes and I could see the purposes of God being fulfilled in my own sight? Do you not see that he has his place and I have my place? He is the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bridegroom. And do you not understand? Have you not heard from my heart how incredibly happy I am about that? Beloved, John's loved his disciples, but he was a mature man of the word of God. He did not share their concern about Jesus. He did not share their discontent in his station in life. He was happy to be the friend of the bridegroom. He was happy not to be the bridegroom himself. Now, as beautiful of a picture as that is, as beautiful a metaphor as it was for me to meditate upon for hours and hours this week, I begin to ask myself two questions. One is, where did John get this metaphor from? And the other is, who did he think the bride of Jesus was? If he is now clearly calling Jesus the bridegroom, who did he think his bride was? So let's start with the first question. Where did John get this metaphor from? Well, I don't think that he made it up out of his mind, and frankly, I don't think that he learned it from Jesus. There was really no time for him to learn this from Jesus. I think that John was a man of the word, and I think that he learned these things in the word of God. From the very beginning of his dealings with Israel, God pictured his relationship with Israel as though he was their husband and they were his bride. Then when they began to be rebellious, he would uh, relate to them. He would refer to them as a rebellious bride. He would sometimes call them an adulteress. He would sometimes call them a prostitute. He would sometimes compare them to one who had been put away from their husband. He was using still the metaphor of covenant marriage to describe his heart toward his people, even when they were unfaithful to him. He was teaching them that in your unfaithfulness, I continue to be faithful. I am like a husband who has a cheating bride and can't stop her from cheating. But then in his amazing grace, in his overwhelming mercy, the Lord planned to redeem his bride rather than cast her off. And so he began to put into the mouths of his chosen prophets this metaphor of marriage to talk about what he would sometime in the future do for his bride. And I wanna draw your attention to two places where that happens. These are a little bit long of text, but I wanna read them with you. So will you first turn with me to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54, and I've told you before, I think John the Baptist knew Isaiah in particular very well. So I think he knew these words, I think he cherished these words. Isaiah 54, the whole chapter is amazing, but I wanna read with you verses four through 10. Isaiah writes, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. He's talking to Israel. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Why? For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. 
and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. So how did she come to be cast off? For a brief moment, says the Lord, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In the future, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but now with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more cover, go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love, my covenant love, my absolutely committed love to you shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Do you see, beloved, God himself Nine, eight, nine hundred years before John the Baptist and Jesus walked the earth was using marriage to point toward the redemptive moment that would come in the lives of his people. Now please turn with me to Hosea, which if you don't know the Bible well, it's a few books to the right. Just keep turning right. Eventually you'll see the book of Hosea. And let's look at Hosea chapter two. I wanna read with you verses 14 through 23. Hosea chapter two, and I will start in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I, the Lord, will allure her, my people, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. Oh, what grace is implied in those words. If you know the book of Hosea, especially what grace is implied in those words. And there I will give her her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, as in the day, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. In other words, you will not call me by the name of a false god. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. That's Genesis chapter one, language. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and here's the key. I will betroth you to me forever. I will marry you, in other words. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast, committed, eternal love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Oh, you who have been so faithless, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you will know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Beloved, John the Baptist did not invent the metaphor of marriage to talk about the relationship between God and his people and to understand the relationship between himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think John learned this metaphor from the word of God and I think that when he saw Jesus and as he prayed about these things, God gave him insight that this is the one. 
God gave him insight that this is the one who came to consummate the marriage between God and his people, which leads us to the second question. Who then did John think was the bride of Christ, and how did he understand these things? Well, for my part, there's no need for us to overstate what John knew. I don't think that he had a fully developed theology of the church as the bride of Christ. I don't think that he knew what we know now because of Ephesians chapter five and because of Revelation 21 and other texts like that. I don't think he had a fully orbed idea of what God was about to do in Christ and frankly he did not need to have that kind of, uh, of an understanding because in more general terms, I think that what John understood was this. Here is the Messiah, here is the Christ and he has come to be married to the people of God. We'll just put it in general terms. I don't think John probably understood the cross, the resurrection, all these things, but somehow or other, God had given him the insight that Jesus had come to marry the people of God. And John knew at that time what Jesus' place was. John knew what his own place was, and here's the kicker. He was content with his place. Do you see how his disciples were not content? They were jealous. They wanted their ministry to be growing faster than the ministry down the street. They didn't want some of the great men of God to come along and steal their thunder, but John was not like them, beloved. John was absolutely full of joy because of these things. And because he felt these things so deeply in his heart, he uttered the words to which Buster drew our attention a little bit ago. They're probably the most famous words any prophet ever spoke, and they are in fact the last recorded words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. He said in verse 30, he said, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And his message to his followers was clear. My friends, do not be jealous, but join me in embracing the joy of the friend of the bridegroom. Join me in embracing your relationship to the bridegroom. Join me in the fact that God has allowed us to see these things with our eyes and to participate at all. Join me in knowing that we have a part in the wedding feast and that we will have joy in God forever and ever. If that's not enough for you, you have much still to learn, my beloved disciples. Oh, he must increase, I must decrease. And John says, I'm really happy about that. In fact, it occurred to me yesterday as I was meditating on this that John's status had to decrease, but guess what? His joy forever increased. It's just status that we're talking about here. Now as it was last week, so it is this week. There is a mild debate among Bible translators and scholars about who is speaking in verses 31 through 36. Some people think that John the Baptist is continuing to speak, but most people think that it's now the Apostle John that takes the helm in verse 31 and speaks to the end of the chapter. That is my point of view. I'm gonna proceed on that assumption, and I wanna invite you to just prayerfully and carefully meditate on what's being said in these verses. These verses are not super easy to understand at first reading because you know the way John writes and talks, he sort of talks in circles at times, and it really makes you think about what he's saying, but at the end of the day, Oh Lord, is he ever revealing some amazing things to us. So please now, let's think about these few verses. The apostle begins in verse 31 by contrasting the one who comes from above with the one who is of the earth. And let me first say a few things about the one who is of the earth. There's some uncertainty here as to who the apostle has in mind, but I think that it's most likely that he has John the Baptist in mind. And I think that he's saying that while he was a great man of God, he was simply a man. I think that he's saying, you know, to be of the earth is not always a bad thing, and I don't think it's a bad thing in this context. 
I think what he is saying is that John was born of an earthly man and an earthly woman. He grew up in an earthly family. He, his ministry has been on this earth. He, he did not literally grow up in heaven, so to speak. He wasn't literally sent directly from heaven to the earth. This is a man, and he has an earthly message. He speaks about earthly things. And again, don't always put a category in your mind that earthly things are bad things, because in the Bible, they're not always bad things. When John spoke about holiness, righteousness, justice, and uh, living a certain kind of life before God, those are about life on this earth, and essentially, in essence, those are earthly things. They have roots in heaven, but they have to do with the things of the earth. And so I think that, that John the Apostle is trying to contrast here Jesus with John the Baptist, and as great as John was, he was still just a man. He was still just a prophet sent from God. But on the other hand, the one who comes from above, the one who was sent by God from heaven to the earth, the one who calls heaven his native home, and the one who looks not just to go back to heaven but to inherit everything that's there as his native possession, that one, John says, is over all. He has God-given authority over all persons and things. He is not to be compared with John the Baptist. Therefore, he is great beyond imagination. He is powerful beyond measure. Therefore, when that one bears witness, he speaks the very words of God. And do you know why? You could say in some measure, too, that John spoke the words of God. Even as I'm preaching now, you could say that in a measure, I am speaking the words of God, but not like Jesus. Jesus spoke the word of God. He testified to the things of God who heard those words with his own ears in the very presence of the Father. He is the one who has seen the fullness of the manifest glory of God the Father without any limitation, without any measure, and without any end. He is the one, and he is the only one. And when he testifies, therefore, he testifies with power. And more than that even, he doesn't just testify as a prophet who was sent. He testifies as the word who was with God in the beginning and who is in fact God, amen? Jesus Christ, beloved, is not just some other prophet that's to be compared to other prophets. John the Apostle's point here is that he is of a completely different category, beloved, of a completely different type, and therefore his ministry is of a completely superior nature. This leads us to what may be the most important truth in heaven and on earth outside the sheer existence of God, namely, verse 35, the Father loves the Son. Such simple words, such profound meaning. I invite you not to take this lightly. I invite you to ponder these things in the days to come. All of the Father's affections constantly pour out upon his Son. All of the Father's thoughts are constantly of his Son. All of the Father's attention is constantly directed toward the Son. All that is in the Father's hand is constantly given to the hand of the Son. The most important thing we need to understand about life in the family of God is that God the Father loves the Son first and foremost. His love for the Son precedes and defines all of his other loves, including his love for the world. And with this in mind, John helps us to see how the Father demonstrates his love for the Son. You'll see in verse 35, this simple sentence, he has given all things into the Son's hand. Oh, what simple words and what profound truth. 
This includes, but it is not limited to, the fullness of the fellowship with the Father, the fullness of divine authority to preside over all persons and things. Just imagine that for a moment. You think the President of the United States is powerful? He is nothing but a drop in the ocean of the power of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the revelation of God and speech from God has been freely and fully given to the Son. The fullness of the Holy Spirit has been given to the Son without condition and without end. And, at least in this text, there's more to be said in John, but one more thing we see here is that the fullness of the Father's mission in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. Namely, to glorify the Father by offering forgiveness to those who believe in the Son and by offering justice to those who refuse to believe in his most holy Son. Beloved, the love of the Father for the Son precedes and defines all of his other loves. And this is the best news that a child of God could ever hear. You may not take it as good news that you are not at the center of God's universe, but you are not at the center of God's universe. And that is the best news you can hear. I'm remembering right now, years ago, it's probably seven or eight years ago, someone caught me at that that door right back there after the service, and she said to me, she said, Pastor, I, I got it. And I said, what did you get? And she said, God is really great, and I am not, and that's really good news. And I said, amen. Because if he loves the son without measure, and the son loves him without measure, this becomes a fountain of life and health, of joy, of salvation for all of us, beloved. This is the fountain of everything we need. And if the Father turns away from the Son and the Son turns away from the Father, the whole thing falls apart, okay? This is why now John turns our attention to the implications of this relationship. They are very, very serious implications. He contrasts now for us the one who believes in the Son of God and the one who refuses to obey the Son of God. On the one hand, those who believe in Jesus and receive his testimony, they set their seal, they give their approval to this thing, that God is true. And what that means is they are testifying that God is telling the truth about Jesus. When God sends his son into the world and says, he is the one that is the means of salvation and of communion with me and of eternal joy and life, when we receive that truth, we are testifying that God is telling the truth. And for that, God grants us eternal life. We're going to see in chapter 17, verse 3, that eternal life does mean life that goes on forever, but primarily it means a relationship with God the Father and with his most sacred Son. If you believe in the Son, you now enter into communion with God through the Son. On the other hand, those who do not believe in Jesus and who therefore reject his testimony, they also reject the words of God They reject the will of God. They reject the spirit of God. They reject the very being of God. You cannot say that you believe in God and that you disbelieve the things that God has revealed. If my daughter was to tell me that she believes me but she doesn't believe anything that I say, this means that she does not believe me. You cannot say that you love God and then hate the one he loves more than anyone else, Jesus Christ. My daughter could not tell me that she loves me and then hate her mother. I would tell my daughter, you don't love me because you don't love the person that I love more than anybody on this earth. To love me is to also love my wife. And oh, how much more this is true for God the Father. It is impossible to say that you know and love God when you hate and reject his son. And so you can see there, they're not my words. These are God's words. 
For the one who does not love God and obey the Son, the wrath of God towards sinners remains upon them. And that really, in some ways, just makes a lot of sense. Persistent rebellion evokes persistent rebuke. An eternal rebellion evokes eternal rebuke. One who will not believe reaps what they sow. So please do not think that you can be right with God no matter what you think about Jesus Christ because that is simply not true. The fullness of the Father's love is upon the Son and therefore to reject him is to reject God. And the opposite is also true. The fullness of the Father's love is upon the Son and so to receive the Son is to receive all of the love of the Father. In fact, We will learn even in the Gospel of John this profound truth that to believe in the Son, to receive his testimony is to be so united with the Son that all the Father's blessings upon the Son also come upon us. I've told you before, but the Bible's favorite way of talking about Christians is to use the word beloved. Don't you know that's his favorite word for his Son too? My beloved Son, and now when we're united through faith with the Son. All that love pours on us, so he is not ashamed, he is not afraid to call us forgiven sinners, his beloved as well. In teaching us these things, beloved, I believe that the old and wise apostle John is attempting to awaken us with truth, and he's attempting to woo us with grace into the warm and saving hands of God. His desire, and more importantly, God's desire, is not that any of us in this room would perish, but that every single one of us would have eternal life. His desire is that we would hear the truth about Jesus and believe and therefore have eternal life. Surely, John's prayer is identical with John the Baptist's prayer for his disciples, that we would be given grace from heaven to see things that we otherwise could not see. And surely, his desire for us is the same as John's for his disciples, that we would take joy in the fact that we are not at the center, but that for the Father, the Son is at the center, and for the Son, the Father is at the center, that we would take joy in the knowledge that we have the ability through simple faith just to know him and to do life with him. So now, let's just pray just for a minute that God will help us to believe, that God will help us to receive and to enter into this joy. Our Father, I wanna thank you at a personal level just for how powerfully this text has impacted me over the last couple of weeks. I feel almost speechless at the things that you have shown to us, and I thank you for that. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share some of the things that I have seen, and I thank you more so for the work of your Holy Spirit among your people, helping them to see things that I never even thought of. I thank you that you are the true teacher here today, that you are the God of this text, and that the things that we're talking about are very personal to you because they're about you. Oh, Father, make these things live for us. Make these truths not just be intellectual ideas that we bat around, but let these be the life-giving realities of our life. Oh, help us to believe in the Son whom you love so much. Help us to give our lives to him who gave his all for us. And I thank you, my Father, for what you will do with this word. Now I pray that you would be with us and I pray that you would be pleased as we rise to sing your praise in Jesus' name, amen.